Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, I just thank you so much. Oh, what an amazing time of worship we just had. Lord, as we, we worship you this morning through our singing and our praise, Lord, now we open up our, our Bibles, your word, and we are gonna, we're going to praise you and worship you through study this morning, Lord. So I pray that you would just take this time, uh, take your words, Lord, take my words and, and create a masterpiece this morning as only you can do. Lord, thank you so much for, for everyone who's here, Lord, open up our hearts soften us up to be able to to receive what it is that you have for each one of us this morning lord i just thank you so much for this place that you've given us for this time now and and, in history right now lord and for the privilege to be able to stand here so thank you jesus in your name we pray amen amen i honestly i'm so excited every time for deuteronomy because i don't know what's going to come out I have a vague idea, but I'm very excited every time to see what God wants to do. Um, so you guys, just a quick, a quick kind of reminder of where we're at, Gen- uh, Deuteronomy 1 and 2. You know, it was, it was time where uh, they were supposed to go into the promised land, remember? And then uh, the, the Lord said, go in and possess this promised land. And, and, and the people, the Israelites, they got kind of nervous and they were like, well, let's send in spies. And remember we talked about how God uh, permitted them to go ahead and send in spies. Uh, I know that wasn't his will. His will was, I've already done the work here. Just go in and possess the land, but I'll permit you to send in spies. And you know, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the difference between God's permissive will and God's perfect will. Which do you want? Perfect will. We want his perfect will. But what do we often get because we negotiate with God? permissive will, right? And so, you know, in our small group, we were kind of talking about the difference between the permissive will of God and the perfect will of God and and how permissive will often leads to detriment, which we see here with the people of Israel. They were like, they, uh, they were like, God, you know, instead of just going right in, like you've said, uh, um, let us send in spies. And they did that. And the spies came out, remember? And they were like, yes, the land is amazing. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's milk and honey. And look at this fruit and, and the pomegranates and all this stuff. Um, but there are also giants. And there are high-walled cities. Um, and there are armies. And um, I just don't think we can do it. We, sh- we, should- we shouldn't go in. And because of that disobedience, God, God said, okay, in fact, you know, if you read the account in Numbers, when they come out and the spies tell all the people, and we, we read a couple weeks ago how they went back into their tents and they murmured, and they're like, I don't know if we should go, I don't know what Moses is doing, dragging us out here. And if you read in Numbers, you hear what they said. They were like, you know what, oh, this is so bad. You know, I can't believe Moses is doing this, and I wish we had died in Egypt, or I, I wish we had died, this is what they say, I wish we had died in the wilderness. And God says, okay, if that's what you want, okay. And what happened to this entire generation? He allowed them to pass away in the wilderness. In fact, he said, the number of days that you sent spies in, 40, that's the number of years you're going to wander on this side of the Jordan River until this generation who, who were disobedient passes away. And uh, 
And that's where you kind of got to in, in chapter two. And then in chapter two, it starts off and he says, God says to the people, um, you know, you have, you have uh, what's the word, skirted this mountain long enough. So now it's 38 years later or so, and he comes back to them and he says, you've skirted this mountain long enough. You know the word scooted? scooted. <laughs> skirted in Hebrew, it means um, encompass. So basically for the entire time of their wandering, they just kind of went around this one little mountain base. They stayed in one area. And you know, it occurred to me the other day, I was like, how come they didn't just like spread out all over the place. They had still all this other land that they had just come through. I mean, they couldn't go into the promised land, but, but how come they didn't spread out? Or why didn't they go back into Egypt? I mean, they all this talk about how, remember how great Egypt was? We had leeks and onions and, and, and you know, and all this garlic. I keep forgetting garlic. <laughs> the Maguires would not have forgotten the garlic. It's, and they have this, this fond memory of what it used to be. And, you know, completely not true, right? I mean, because what also did they have in Egypt? Like whips and bondage and, and, and work and work and work. And when were they eating all this garlic anyway? I mean, <laughs> so, you know, they come out and they, they, they were like, oh, if we, you know, if we could just go back to Egypt, it was so great. And now they've got the opportunity because they could have gone, but they didn't. They stayed right in this one familiar place, basically just going in circles, just going in circles over and over and over. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're just going in circles, doing the same thing over and over and over again? And I wonder if there's, some, if there's a moment in that time when you might just say, Lord, am I in disobedience that I am now stuck in this cycle uh, and just feeling like I'm going nowhere? Is, is there something that I'm being disobedient in? Am I not trusting you to take out a step? Now, in their case, they, didn't, they, they could not have said, okay, you know, we're sorry, we'll be obedient now. No, they had already uh, tried that, right? But in your life, when you feel like maybe you're just stuck in a cycle, maybe ask God, is there something that I'm being disobedient in that, that maybe I, I'm not seeing the path, the way that you're leading me out of this way? But these people, you see, they're stuck. But it, it, finally it comes to him, he, he comes to them and he says, all right, you have been here long enough. It's time to go. It's time to move. We're going to head off to the promised land. Now, this is the next generation of people that he's talking to, right? All the, all the other folks have died off. In fact, in numbers, if you read it, it's much more graphic. He says, your carcasses will fall by the wayside. <laughs> Carcass. <laughs> well, that's what happened. So now God says, it's time to go. But on your way, there's going to be these, uh, these people groups, these kingdoms that you're going to go through. And the first one, you know, he says, you're going to come to the, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and they're in this land, uh, but you're not going to go into battle against these people. You're going to pass through as peacefully as possible. In fact, he says, when you pass through, you're not going to eat their food or drink their water. And if you do, then you're going to pay them for it. He says, this is not a battle that I want you to fight. No battle here. And they're obedient to go through the land exactly as he calls them to do. They do not go into battle against the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. They pass through the land. And, for, and uh, we have to assume that if they drank uh, any water or any food that they paid with silver for that right to do that. And then they come to another couple of people groups, actually. You know, the descendants of Lot. 
the, the Moabites and the Ammonites, right? And God wants again, and he says, these are not a people who you are going to go into battle against. This is not a battle that I want you to fight. And again, they were obedient to go through that land and not fight in battle against those people because God said, this is not a battle for you. Don't fight a battle here. Don't fight a battle here. But then what do we see? At the end of the chapter, we see that the, the king of, uh, what's his name? Sihon, right? King Sihon. And God says, now this is a battle that I want you to fight. Now, there's a really important message just in, in that whole chapter right there that sometimes there are battles that God calls us to fight. And sometimes there are battles that God says, this is not your fight. This is not your battle. I'm going to give you an example that uh, a sister uh, in the Lord came and gave me this example in her life this morning. And she said that she uh, works with this group of uh, um, high school age girls. And they were about to go into a competition. And one of the girls said, "Um, can we, to the whole group, she said, is it okay, can we pray it's pretty bold. So all the other girls in this group, they all kind of were like, oh, okay, all right, who should do it? And all of them pointed to this sister of ours who's the leader of the group. Now, the, at, the, at the moment, in that moment, this, this sister, she is working for the public school. And yes, she's being uh, presented with the opportunity to pray with all of these public school kids in the capacity that she works for the school. And in a moment, she was like, I don't know what to do. So she said, look, in the capacity that I'm in, I can't really, I can't do that. Now, right now, before in your mind you start thinking, well, how could she not do that? How could she not stand up? As a result, the girl who brought it up decided that she would lead the group in prayer. Now, I put this to you right now. Like, you could sit there and say, well, she should have stood up and she should have fought that battle right there in that moment because she's a coward because she didn't. But I would say that this was one of those battles that God said, this is not a battle that I have you to fight because I have other things planned. What did he have planned? This young girl who had now was strengthened and had to step out in her own faith to say, you know what, I'll lead the prayer then. I will lead the prayer in this case. You know, and she and I were talking this morning and God was reminding me of this. Sometimes there are battles that we are called to fight and sometimes God says this is not a battle. Not because God's afraid, not because he thinks you're afraid, but because there's something else that he is doing in that situation that we can't see. In the case with these Edomites and Moabites and Ammonites, he was saying, I have this in this land for a purpose. First of all, he said, I promised them this land. I promised their forefathers this land. So you're not going to come in and take it away because I promised it to them. But I'm going to use them later on as an instrument of my judgment. And so I need them here. They couldn't see that at the time. They wouldn't understand it because it would be a, a, a tool of judgment against them hundreds of years later. And they probably wouldn't want to hear that. Um, but God says, I'm doing something that's bigger than what you can see. This is what we see, right? We see our life and our timeline, and this is what God's doing, and anything else we don't see. But God's all out here as well. And he says, you need to listen to me. So when I say, fight this battle, but don't fight this battle, we say, okay, 
all right, I'll be obedient. I will be obedient. Do you know what's also really interesting as you look through these kingdoms, like the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, and, and if, you, if you remember when, when uh, Pastor Jeff was walking you through that, you see that those lands, um, they had giants, they had walled cities, they had mighty armies, but it says that God overcame them all. Each time it talks about that, it says that, that he delivered those lands into the hands of the Ammonites, into the hands of the Edomites, right? That's pretty cool, actually, because what's in the promised land? Oh, giants. Yeah, well, milk and honey also. Oh, giants, walled cities, and mighty armies, the very same thing that God said, I gave this land to them. I handed it over to them. I defeated the, uh, the giants, the walled cities, and the mighty armies and put it into the hands of these people, just like I told your fathers that I would do, but they didn't trust me. They didn't believe me enough. You're about to go into this land and do it. Um, look, I'm just showing you that I've done it for these folks. How much more will I do it for you? And so he's building them up again. He's building up this group and saying, you're about to go into a similar situation with giants and walled cities and mighty armies, but I will do the work. You need only to trust me in that. So he says, arise, take your journey and cross the river of Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand. Sion, it's so cool to me that God talks in the past tense when he does this. He, you're going to see this again today. He's like, I have given. And they're like, what? We haven't even gone there yet. And God says, yeah, but I have. I've already been there. I'm back again. And I'm telling you, I've already done it. You need only trust. Just trust me. And they actually go in and they defeat the king, king Sion, Sihon. In fact, it's such a major battle because he had a huge army against the Israelite army. It was such a huge battle, and it impacted not just the Israelites at the time, but all the other kingdoms in the area. All of the other kingdoms in this region heard about this battle. In fact, there's one in particular that you're going to see later on. But when they cross over, the very first city on the other side of the Jordan River is Jericho. And when they go into Jericho, they meet a woman there named Rahab, right? Rahab is a pagan woman, part of this culture. But what does she say? We have heard of how your God defeated Sihon and King Og, which we haven't gotten to yet, and how he split the sea so that you could walk through on dry land. By the way, that was 40 years ago they heard about that. And it says that we're all afraid. We have no spirit left. Our hearts are melted. And so they heard about this battle. They heard about the God of the Israelites and what he was doing to bring them into the land. And it says that their hearts melted and there was no fighting spirit left. That's amazing. You know what's also amazing about the fact that Rahab is right here and talking about this? It can get a little bit, I don't know. Hard to hear when God says to the Israelites, go into this land and wipe out everybody. And it says that they went in and they killed the, the men, the women, and the children. They literally just wiped out the entire civilization. And you think, well, that sounds really mean. That, I mean, 
that sounds really mean of God to say, look, these are my chosen people, and I'm just giving them whatever they want at the expense of everybody else in the land, and what, who cares, and, and because I'm God. I hear that a lot. I hear a couple of things to think about. God had promised to Abraham that he was going to give his descendants this land. You know how long ago that was from here? 400 years. 400 years earlier. So for 400 years... They, the people of, of Canaan, this, this land, 400 years, had that long to come to an understanding of God, to turn away from their pagan rituals, to turn away from their child sacrifices, to turn away from their sexual rituals. But they didn't. 400 years God gave them the opportunity to make that change, to turn away from their pagan ways, and they didn't. And so God says, uh, Israel, I'm also going to use you as my tool of judgment on a people who refused to turn. Although I want you to think about this. Rahab, pagan woman in this culture, witnesses the work of God and her heart is changed, right? So it wasn't just everybody who was a, a Canaanite. Everybody that was a pagan worshiper um, didn't have a chance just because they were uh, a Canaanite. But Rahab, they, God gives us the example of Rahab to say Rahab was one of those people, but she saw and witnessed the work of God and his power, and her heart was melted and changed. And did you know, and you probably do, that Rahab is actually included in the genealogy of Jesus because of how her life was changed after this. So not only was her life changed, but her life was changed so that she was included in the family of Jesus. How many of you have a similar story? You were, well, you know, pagan. <laughs> if you're not worshiping the, the, the true and living God, that's what you are. How many of you were that and then witnessed the life-changing power of God and accepted Jesus as your Savior, your heart was changed, and you became part of the family of Jesus Christ, just like Rahab? How many of us were like, are, can say, like, hey, I'm kind of like Rahab? Now, you're also now in the genealogy of Jesus. You're on this end of it, though, because now you're considered by God as an heir, right? The Bible says that. Right? But many of us were just like Rahab was, worse. Was words isn't a word, right? No. <laughs> it's it's really remarkable that you can witness the the life changing power of Jesus Christ and say, "Huh," and your heart can change, and you could say, "I'm going to accept that. I want that." And not just your heart changes, but your life changes, and not just your life, but your eternal life changes. Because your eternal life just went from an eternity separated from God in what, the, what we call hell, if you're new to that concept, into an eternity with God in heaven. And you want that. And if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, you've got that. But if you don't know him as your Savior, you do not have that assurance. In fact, you have a different assurance, and that is eternal separation from Jesus. <clears throat> well, let's look at chapter 3. That's just the intro. 
Verse 1, chapter 3, it says, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle in Edrei. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him. Do you know why the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him? He was scary. This is going to say that he was a giant. In fact, he was the last of the remnants of giants. And we're going to see later on that he was probably 13 feet tall. This is a big guy. This is a giant. And so God normally doesn't say in his word, don't be afraid if you aren't already afraid. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't really waste words, does he? And so God says to him, look, there's this king, Og, Og. Do you know what the do you know what the word do you know what the name Og means? Like cake. <laughs> I wish that had more significance. It doesn't. It's just interesting. Ked or 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 or, or, um, or bread, bread or cake. Usually in the Bible, when it talks about a cake, it's talking about just bread, which is sad because I like cake more than bread. <clears throat> but he, so this guy, this giant king, he comes out in battle against them. But God says, do not fear him, for I, what? Have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hands, and you shall do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. And so he says, basically he's saying, I have already delivered him. I know it doesn't look like it to you, but I've already delivered him into your hands, and you will defeat him just as you defeated Sihon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time, and there were not a city which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og, kingdom of Og in Bashan. And all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. That sound familiar, right? What did they see when they came out, the spies came out? They saw fortified cities with gates and bars, and they saw giants as this king was. And, uh, and God handed them over. And all the cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, and we did as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. If you look over at chapter 235, it says also after they defeated Sihon, it says that we only took the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities we also took. And so what we see here is because these folks go in uh, out of obedience against these kingdoms, against Sihon and against Og, um, God said, go into battle. And since they went in out of obedience and they did exactly what God told them to do, look at what they come away with. Provision. God says, when you are obedient in what I am telling you to do, I will provide. And so they come away. I mean, I remember they've been living in the wilderness for, you know, 40 years. Right? And maybe their supplies are starting to run a little bit low here. And so as they take these cities, as they're obedient in, in taking the cities, God is saying, and I'm going to give you all this livestock, all their livestock and all their possessions that they had, they're now yours, including their cities. It's like when, 
when he says you can move in to these, these uh, cities now, they don't even have to build houses or stores or, or, or anything. It's all there already. And God provides because they were obedient. I'm going to come back to that. And at the time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on the side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Siron, and the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the plain, all the Gilead, and all of Bashan, as far as Salca and Edrei, cities of kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only King Og of Bashan remained of the remnant of giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width according to the standard cubit. And so that's like a very interesting little side note that Moses sticks in there, right? He says, and in this, you know, we defeated this guy, this King Og, um, and he was the last remaining remnant of the race of giants. And as a reference point, his bedstead, which is a very weird thing, uh, to, to, to keep in a, like, he says, is it not also, you know, don't they also have it in uh, Rabbah, the people of Ammon, like, um, like on display, like they had it there. And whether it was uh, a bed, when I, when I say bedstead, does everybody imagine their bed at home, like a, a, a headboard with bed and like, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, some people think it was like a sarcophagus that it can be kind of translated like coffin or sarcophagus. Some people say that it was like a couch, like just a big couch, because, you know, they, their beds weren't necessarily like our beds. They were just like a thing that they would recline on in sleep. And so in any case, this piece of furniture, whatever it was, bed or couch or, or, or sarcophagus, uh, was his personally, and the size of it is an indication of the size of this guy. Because cubits, if it's talking about cubits, you know a cubit is 18 inches long, right? So this bedstead of his, when it talks about nine cubits, that's like, like 13 and a half feet long. 13 and a half feet. So this stage right here, right here, is 20 feet. So 13 feet, it's about to here somewhere. Look how big that is. Do you know a king-size bed? You ha who has a king-size bed at home? All right. You know how big that is? You know how long a king-size bed is? Six and a half feet. The, when you walk into a room and you see a king-size bed, it looks enormous. It was still shorter than this piece of furniture. And it's six feet wide, about the same width as a king-size bed, but 13 and a half feet long and made out of iron. Now, what's really neat, and this is what I really love about the Bible, because I think it really lends... Uh, a, a sense of, of this is true, is that it says it was nine cubits long and, and four cubits wide, according to the standard cubit. It just adds that little detail in there to say, you know, this is, this is real. It's not just some mythical made up kind of a story, um, but it's saying, you know, this is according to the standard cubit. In case you wanted to go home and make one for yourself, you can measure, use the standard cubit, not the giant cubit. I guess a giant cubit would be way bigger. And I mean, if we were measuring in giant cubits, that's an even bigger bedstead. But the other part of it is that if you want, at the time that he was writing this, he says, if you care to see it for yourself, you can go on over to this city because they have it on display over there. And you can go and take a look at it. That's so cool. 
So he says, in this land, which we possessed at that time from Ar, which is by the river Arnon and half of the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the, Ger- the Gersherites and the Machishathites and called Bashan after his own name, Havarth Jair, to this day. Also, I gave Gilead to Machir and the Reubenites and the Gadites. I gave the Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Ammon. The plain also with the Jordan as the border of Chinnereth, as far as the side of the Sea of the Arabar, the Salt Sea, uh, below the slopes of Pishgah. So all of that is to say that Moses divided up all of this land on what they're going to say this side or the east side, the side that they're on of the Jordan River. And the reason that happened is because the tribe of of, uh, Reuben and the tribe of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and said, this is pretty good land over here. This is, you know, good for it. Literally, if you, you could read through this um, in Numbers, it says they came um, and they said, uh, this land is good for grazing all of our livestock. So we would prefer to just stay over here. And so he breaks down that, that whole land, right? And I thought that's very interesting. Now, first of all, a little side note. When you say, when I'm talking about, you know, these are the, the sons of Jacob, right, that make up the tribes, Reuben and Gad, um, and these are their descendants, so the Reubenites and the Gadites. Um, and then the, the half-tribe of Manasseh. See, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, made up one whole tribe. And so one half of that was Manasseh and one half was Ephraim. And so we're talking about two full tribes and a half-tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, have all come together and said, we have a lot of livestock, we have a lot of cattle, why don't we just stay over here? on this side of the Jordan River, and Moses gave them all of this land, which is really interesting to me because really what they're saying is, from what we can see, this is really good. Let's just stay here. Now, here's my question. Was there not good grazing land on the other side of the Jordan River as well? Do you think? I think there probably was. Um, But here's the thing. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see the good grazing land on the other side of the river. What they could see was where they were. They looked around and they said, this is what we could see. This looks good. Why don't we just stay here? It didn't take any faith to stay in that land. They didn't have to exercise any faith in God's word or God's provision to stay where they were. Now, do you think it was God's will, his perfect will, that they stay there? No. See, God's perfect will was that they all go into the promised land that he had given to them. Right? But they come and they say, look, we, we really like this land. We kind of like to stay here. And so God said, all right, I will permit you to stay here on this side. Now, Moses does give them a caveat. He says, okay, you guys could stay But when we go over, all your fighting guys have to go with us, and you have to fight with your brothers until they have victory. 
and then you can come back. But you can leave your kids and your livestock and all your possessions. You can leave them over here, but you got to come over and fight, which they did do, and they went ahead and they did that. But then when that was all done, they come back and they stay in this land. They stay within the permissive will of God because God's will was that everybody go. But he allowed them to stay. But they looked out and they said, this looks pretty good. Why don't we just stay here? We're already here anyway. All of our kids are here. All of our wives are here. Our livestock is already here. It's pretty convenient. Why don't we just stay here and serve God? You see, what they were saying was, we would love to serve God and continue to serve him, but we'll do it from this place of convenience. And God permitted that, but... As we see over and over again, being in the permissive will of God usually and almost never works out good, right? Sending in the spies, God permitted it, but how did that work out for them? Bad. That's bad. Um, What we're going to see here is that God permits these two and a half tribes to stay in this place of convenience, but it works out bad. In fact, what happens is 400 years later, interestingly enough, this is is in uh, 1 Chronicles 5. You can jot this down and look it up later, but just trust me. This is referring to, if you read through the entire chapter 5, this is referring to these two and a half tribes. And it says, And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Harbor, Hara, and to the river of Gozan to this day. You see, what happened was they got into this land, this place of convenience, where they were like, well, we could serve God right from here. I mean, we're already here. It's pretty convenient. We really don't have to take any steps out in faith. And God says, I'll permit it. But you know what? It's not going to work out well for you. And not that God was going to punish them, but because they were surrounded by pagan nations who were worshiping pagan gods, they were sucked into that culture. And it says that they, um, that they started to serve these foreign gods. 400 years. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? 400 years? Because didn't I just talk about the fact that God had promised to Abraham 400 years before the spot that we're looking at that they would go in and dispossess these other pagan nations from the land because they refused also to turn to God? And here we have 400 years later this, this godly nation that stayed and was influenced by these pagan nations is now so pagan that God has to come in and, and take them out of the land using, by the way, the Assyrian nation. How do you know that you're, how do you know that you're on the precipice of the permissive will of God? We talked about this in our small group. Like, how do I know? Here's a clue. If you start negotiating with God, when God says, I would like you to go here, And you say, I hear what you're saying, God. I think that is a fantastic idea. But how about not right now? How about when I am making a little bit more money? 
How about when my kids are graduated from high school or when my grandkids are grown up? Because, you know, or how about, how about when our church gets to be this size? Or how about this? Or how about that? Why don't I, why, why don't, you know, Lord, I, I really want to do that. Or, or how about not there? Can I, can I serve you here? I'm already here. I know you're calling me to go there, but I'm already here. You know, and I've got some roots down here and I'm established. And, and God says, uh, okay. Okay, but you're in the danger zone. In 1 Kings, there's a story of uh, God coming to Elijah. And he says, uh, Elijah, I want you to go out into the land, and I want, you to, I want you to anoint these two guys as king, and I want you to find a guy named Elisha. Does that bug anybody else except for me? I mean, come on, God. You couldn't have gone with just two completely different names, like Elijah and Larry? <laughs> no, no. Elijah and Elisha. He says, go out and find this guy, Elisha, and you're going to anoint him to take your place as the prophet of the nation of Israel. And so, and so uh, Elijah goes out, and he finds Elisha out plowing a field. It says that he's, he's got you know, there's this huge team of oxen, and, and Elisha is there, and in 1 Kings, it says that he walked over and he took off his mantle and he threw it on him. It almost as like he just kind of went and threw it on him and it like wraps around his head as he's plowing and he stops. And, and in essence, what he does is he anoints Elijah as the prophet that will replace him. And so Elijah, <laughs> Elisha realizes what, what's happening and he says, oh man, this is really great and I so want to do this, but... Let me go home and kiss my mother and my father goodbye. And so what is he doing? He's negotiating, right? God is like, I want you to take the place of Elijah eventually. You know, you're going to go and you're going to learn how to be Elijah's replacement. And he says, I love that idea. I love how you're thinking, God. However, let me just do this thing first. Now, thankfully... Elijah says, what? That's a paraphrase. <laughs> he says, go back then. That's literally what he says. Go back then. You don't, you don't understand what I just did. At that moment, Elisha has a decision to make. All right, am I going to continue to negotiate with God and, and, and land squarely in the permissive will of God? Or am I going to listen to what I'm being told and follow and be in the perfect will of God? What does he do? He follows. He says, okay. And what he does is he offers two of the oxen. He kills two of the oxen and he breaks up their yoke and he lights a fire with it. And, and uh, he makes an offering to the Lord in, in, in obedience to say, you know what? You're right. You're right. I want to be in the perfect will of God. I am not going to serve God from a place of convenience, but a place of obedience. How many times now in our lives do we try and serve God out of convenience? Well, Sunday morning is very convenient because we, we're not really doing anything else anyway. You know, and, and maybe you've set the time aside and say, you know what? Going to church, I go to church on Sundays. That's what I do. I serve God. I serve God every single week on Sunday. What about Sunday night? 
What about during the week? What about during a time when it's not convenient? Are we prepared to serve God when it's not convenient? Are we prepared to serve God in a place that's not where we are right now? If God is saying, hey, I am wanting you to go to this place right here, but are you looking at your life and go like, well, I mean, my kids are in the school and I've got this job and I, 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 I you know, what about this and what about that? And Lord, how about I and whatever, insert whatever makes it more convenient for you. And God permits it. Oftentimes God permits that, but it will be to your detriment. Uh, before we moved here, you know, we were from New York, and, and uh, I had gotten laid off from my job, and uh, I wasn't really sure what we were going to do, but we were praying, and we were trusting that God was going to do something, and I got another job. And actually, this job was more money. It was closer to my home. It was a better organization that I was working for, like all the parts that you're like, all right, thank you, Lord. This is good. He answered my prayer. I didn't know how that was going to work out over the summer, but he answered my prayer. Um, but at the same time, he planted a seed of Florida. At the same time, he started to say, you're going to go to Florida. Now, it was a quiet voice, I'll admit. We didn't really we didn't hear it right away, and maybe we weren't really listening because I was like, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer, and I have a new job, and it's all going great. Um, but the fact is that God finally came to us with a pretty loud voice that said, you're going to Florida. And there was a moment that I said, but I just got here. I've only been at this job for eight months. And already you're telling me it's time to leave? Didn't you give me this job? Did he give me that job? Yes. What was the purpose? I may never know what the purpose was of that job. There was maybe someone that I ministered to while I was there that their life was changed. I don't know. Maybe I was changed in the process. But God said, it's time to go to Florida. And there was a part of me that almost started to negotiate that, to say, well, let me be here at least a year so that my resume doesn't look all choppy. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do about, you know, well, we, you know, we've got a house. Do you know what he did with our house? This is cr- kind of crazy. We, we owned a two-family house with my mother-in-law. That was, you know, and that's why I'm so patient now. <laughs> we did not know how to get out of that situation at all. We thought, oh, we're going to have to go, and we're going to have to tell Deirdre's mom that we have to sell the house, which means that she has to move also. Like, this was kind of a big disruption. So then you'd be like, God, are you sure? Because this is a lot of change for a lot of people. And um, so we got a call from my mother-in-law's sister, who said, um, yeah, Catherine wants to sell the house. And we're like, what? And that's when you're like, we're going to Florida. I guess we're just, we're going to Florida because when God says, here, here's all the doors and I'm just going to throw all the obstacles out of the way and you're looking at a clear path and, you're, and the, if you start negotiating there, oh man, are you in trouble. If you don't go through that door and start walking the way that God wants you to walk, you are going to regret that later. Oh, man. And I had no idea I was going to come to this. All we knew that God was saying, Florida. You know what? There are a few years that was feeling a little dry. 
feeling a little deserty, feeling a little bit like the wilderness, honestly, you know, until God planted us right here in this body. And then I look back now at this and where we are, and I look back and I think, man, I'm so glad that I did not negotiate and end up in the permissive will of God, because who knows where we would have been. But here we are. Do you know that this land that they're in right here, this land that I'm talking about, that he gave to them um, after, they, you know, after they're taken out and then they come back into the land much, much later than that, this land comes up again in the Bible. I don't know if you, if you realize this, but, but in Mark chapter 5, oh my gosh, in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 5, there is a story about how Jesus goes to a land uh, where they are to minister to a guy that has a legion of demons in him, right? You know where that is? Gadarene. Gadarene. It's this same land. This same land now, which used to be this land filled with people that served and worshiped God and wanted to stay in this really serene area because they had all this really great wild uh, um, cattle to graze there, is now filled with pagans, demons, and pigs. That's what that land has become, right? I mean, it's a lot of years later, but that's where that place is now, or at least in the Bible. I mean, all their cows turn to pigs. <laughs> that sounds not so bad to me, but for, for a Jew, that would have been bad, bad. All of their cows turn to pigs. Let's see. Well, then I commanded that you... Uh, that, that type saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All of you men of valor shall cross over arm before your brethren and your chil- and children of Israel. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities which I have given you until the Lord has given, has given rest to your brethren uh, as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord God is giving them beyond the Jordan. So basically that's him saying, all right, you could stay here, but all of you fighting men have to come over and fight with your brothers until he's given them. And this is interesting. He says, until the Lord has given rest to your brethren, right? Rest is victory. That's what he's saying. They're going to go in and you're going to be with them until they are victorious over these people that we're dispossessing. Um, But here he uses the word rest. That's interesting to me. Victory in the Lord is what? Rest. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Oh, that's big. And I commanded Joshua at the time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You know, Joshua's going to be the one that's going to lead the men, not Moses. We've already talked about. So God says, you need to encourage Joshua now and show him, say, all of, all of what you saw me do to these other kings, King uh, um, uh, Sihon and King Og, um, and all the other kingdoms whose land I gave them in the same way, remind him that I can do it and that, in fact, I have done it. And encourage Joshua. you must not fear for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Well, you know what? If you like, like to crochet pillows and things, there's a good one right there. 
put that verse, you must not fear them for the Lord your God himself fights for you. And apply that as often as you like in your life when you are afraid. And remember that God fights for you. And then I pleaded with the Lord at the time saying, oh Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your, your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. And I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. And so, so Moses is getting excited and he's seeing like they've just overcome these two major armies and they're getting ready to go in the promised land. And, and Moses comes to God and he says, hey, remember 40 years ago when you said I couldn't go into the promised land? Is there, you know, any wiggle room on that any wiggle room on that whole I can't go in kind of a thing because I'm just really excited I'm seeing everything you're doing here I'm just really excited to see what you're gonna do there and can I just go in and see it notice he doesn't say allow me to continue to lead the people (laughs) he says I just want to see it with my own eyes I want to see what it is you're gonna do and God says no No, but the Lord was angry with me on your account. (laughs) You, (laughs) and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. So I just feel like, yikes. And God says, no, I don't want to talk about this again. You know that there are three basic ways that God answers prayer. Yes, wait, and no. (laughs) And essentially, he says to Moses, no, no, I already told you no. But he says, go up onto the top of Pishka and lift your eyes towards the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes for you shall not cross over. So he says, go up on the top of this mountain, uh, Moses, and look in every direction. Is that interesting to you? Because um, he's already coming from one direction, right? Wouldn't you think that if God was going to show him, he'd come up and say, just look in these three directions. But God says, no, go up on the top of this mountain and look in every direction because my presence and my promise you will see coming from every direction. But he says something interesting. Moses says, I just want to see. Can't you just let me cross the river and let me see it? And God says, no, but go up and behold it. I mean, look at what I'm doing. Look in every direction and behold it. Understand it. Know it. Now, actually, this isn't a no, isn't it? He doesn't say, no, you can't go in. Because we know that Moses does show up in the promised land. You know where? Oh, you guys are good. In the Gospels, it talks about Jesus going up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, where it says his, his heaven opens up and his garments are glowing, and he's there with Peter and James and John. And, is that right? Yeah. And, and who's there with him? Moses and Elijah. And there's Moses in the midst of the promised land. And so God doesn't say no necessarily. I mean, he does say, you know, in this time. Kind of what he says is, well, just wait. Because you're going to get there. 
You are going to get there. And he does get there in the, prom, in, the, in, the, in the Mount of Transfiguration, in a glorified state, standing with Jesus. That's better. And they think that if you were to go to Moses and say, all right, Moses, you can go in now in your 120-year-old body all with all these stiff-necked people who you, know, you constantly fight with, or you can go with Jesus and stand on the mountain and see him transfigured in glory. Which one do you want? Which one would you want? I'll go with glory and Jesus. I'll take that one. Jesus and glory, right? And so... You can look at that and say, well, what God had planned was better, right? So when you get that prayer, that answered prayer from God, where it's a no or it's a wait, you can trust that whatever he's got planned, better, better. Now, I don't know how long it'll take to get that better, but it will be better. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much, Lord, for your will. Lord, I, I thank you that you, you keep bringing up to mind the, the difference and the comparison between your permissive will and your perfect will, Lord. I pray that we would find ourselves in your perfect will, and Lord, that we would be content there, not just content, but Lord, that we would embrace it. We would grab on with both hands, Lord. Lord, remind us each and every time that we find ourselves trying to serve you and trying to satisfy you from a place of convenience, Lord, rather than full-on obedience. Lord, let us not get lazy. Lord, let us not get wrapped up in what's easy for us. Certainly you going to the cross and dying for us was not easy, was not convenient. Lord, but you did it anyway. You went to the cross for us because we were sinners, Lord. The Bible says that we were your enemies, that we hated you in our hearts. Lord, but you loved us so much that you went and you died for us. Thank you, Lord. I know that wasn't easy or convenient. Lord, I know that there are lots of times in our lives that aren't easy or convenient, but Lord, I pray that we would desire to serve you no matter what. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of your word in a time that doesn't even believe in truth or know what truth is or have maybe dismissed the word altogether, Lord. Lord, help us to know the battles that we are to fight, Lord, and the battles that we are not to fight, trusting that you have a plan for that situation and it's better than what we could come up with, Lord. Thank you for everyone here for this morning. Thank you, Jesus.